I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Nandan Nilakani, co-founder of Infosys, a global information technology and consulting company. Nandan started Infosys in Bangalore, India with six colleagues in 1981, and the company has more than 150,000 employees and $7 billion in revenue. Nandan left Infosys in 2009 and is leading a social initiative started by the Indian government. He is the chair of the Unique Identification Authority of India, which through its project Aadhaar is seeking to provide unique identifications to every Indian resident. This biometric ID system will revolutionize distribution of social benefits and financial services. Welcome. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Aadhaar is essentially building a pipeline through which services will get delivered in a cost-effective way. Yes, Aadhaar is actually a platform, and the word Aadhaar means foundation. So it's a foundational platform which enables everyone to have a unique identity number which acts as a proof of identity and a proof of address. And on that foundation, you can build a variety of services and benefits for the common man. It will be the largest database in the world. How many people are you focused on reaching eventually? Well, eventually the idea is to reach every resident of India, which is over a billion people. But it's already the world's largest uh, biometric database. And it's also multimodal, which means that it looks at both uh, the iris of both the eyes and the fingerprints and a photograph. And uh, the reason we need the biometrics is essentially to establish uniqueness of identity. And I know that it's just the pipeline, but you you obviously now can think hard about your your whole welfare system in India. You're enabling that. Yeah, yeah we, we think that on this platform, a large number of applications will get built. Right. Now, reforming the welfare system is just in one application of this platform, which in some sense is the original driver and which essentially pays for the cost of building this. But once this platform is rolled out, we see a lot many applications coming, some of which we can't even visualize today. An example of that in the US would be the GPS, the Global Positioning System. If you recollect, the GPS was designed by the military for actually for military purposes, for precision bombing and all that. But in the year 2000, the GPS was put in the commercial domain. And since then, there's been a huge industry around the GPS. Mm -hmm. And all the GPS does is answer the question, where am I? And mm -hmm. on top of that, all these applications have come about. Okay. Now, in the year 2000, when GPS was put in the commercial domain, you could not have visualized that 10 years later, you would be sitting in your car and using your smartphone and you know finding out how to go home. So I think we also see this, we can see lots and lots of applications that we can't even comprehend today, which we think will bring immeasurable benefits to our people. Fingerprints are obviously not without their flaws, especially in places like India where you know people work a lot with their hands and the fingerprints are sometimes worn down. How do you, how do you deal with those? That's uh, exactly why we selected both the iris and the fingerprints because we said if you go with fingerprints alone, uh, then that could perhaps not work out for people who do a lot of manual labor or who, whose fingers have got eroded. So the iris and fingerprint actually to make it much more inclusive so that everybody gets into uh, into the system and gets a unique ID. In the United States, when a child is born, that's when their ID uh, gets established. Are you now starting to issue IDs to infants when they're born? Well, uh, the thing is that this is a voluntary number and it's only a number, it's a digital ID. So yes, infants also can enroll into the system uh, whenever, whenever the parents want to enroll them. Uh, and also, the, one of the reasons we are doing this is because uh, in India, there are a large number of children who don't have birth documents or don't have any 
a piece of paper which identifies who they are. Can you describe the current system of identification in India? There are a number of uh, IDs, like elsewhere. You have uh, passports, you have driver's licenses, you have a voter ID card, you have a ration card, which is your entitlement for uh, food subsidies. There's a PAN card for tax taxpayers. Uh, what what we were looking for was one a universal ID because we wanted everyone to have the ID because in many of these IDs not everyone is covered for a variety of reasons. Obviously, uh, this initiative is very complicated logistically. Can you walk me through the process for a farmer in the Punjab who has no address, uh, who's seventy two years old? How does he typically? find out about the program well uh, you know the, we do we do uh, s- several uh, you know media campaigns and uh, you know radio and television campaigns about aadhar but the biggest information is actually coming from word of mouth from the buzz around it because people see this as a gateway to future services uh, what happens is that we have uh, enrollment stations around the country how many we have today about 25000 of them so people come in and they provide very basic information name address date of birth sex email id and phone number if they have it and and the biometrics and then all this information is sent to our central processor which does this deduplication to make sure that everybody gets only one number it takes about 15 to 30 minutes per resident that's right to process actually this. sometimes even less maybe 10 to 20 minutes yeah it sounds so smooth 30,000 feet as we talk here in the studio but can you talk me through you know just some of the at a granular level some of the challenges No I think uh, obviously I I and at a at a high level it does sound uh, simple it it's actually quite difficult to do because uh, at the enrollment station we have built a very sophisticated software called the client enrollment client that operates in all indian languages so when you enroll for example if you enroll in uh, in 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 you know in in delhi uh, it will be in english and hindi mm-hmm. but if you enroll in karnataka it will be english and kannada and you know every indian language is there in our system so it transliterates between english and the local language so we we deal with all this multilingual uh, stuff then uh, on the biometric side we have to allow people to make sure it's high quality biometric so we have to build in all those things so when we rolled this out in september 2010 it was still early days but based on field experience we have made the software better and better and then from these 25000 locations all these packets have to be encrypted and physically sent either through a broadband connection or through a hard disk to a data center so it's it's a massive data management uh, issue because you have to keep track of each and everyone's details what about electricity going out in some of these areas sure so these people uh, typically have uh, a generator or something when they set up these if there's no electricity then they have a small generator which generates electricity while they're doing this task how many companies uh, have you partnered with to do this i mean obviously you're not building the the biometric iris scanning yourself our partners include state governments banks oil companies that's one side of it on the technology side we have about 75 or more enrolling agencies we have uh, uh, training agencies we have uh, device suppliers who provide those devices and we have three biometric deduplication uh, agencies that deduplicate the biometrics which we provide to them when you say deduplicate well you know let's say a million people enroll and some people enroll and suppose enroll more than one time which is a possibility how do we make sure that they get only one number and to do that we have to compare the biometrics of every enrollee against all the people that we have and that's a very very computationally intensive task because let's say we have 
400 million people in our database and a million new people enroll that day, each of the million has to be compared against all 400 million to see whether the person exists or not and on all attributes. So it leads to trillions of uh, comparisons. So we have a massive uh, computing infrastructure for that. It's something like how the internet companies in the US have you know, massive uh, data centers. That's the heart of it. We make sure that you get only one number. Still, Nandan, it, it's striking how quickly you've been able to get this up and running. Are you worried that the pace will compromise uh, the getting it right part? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think uh, speed and uh, accuracy are, are like opposite. You can combine speed with quality. It really comes down to how well you design and architect what you're doing. There are a couple of reasons why we were able to get this uh, um, this speed and scale. One is that we didn't try to do everything ourselves. Our core team is less than 300 people, but our ecosystem has maybe 100,000 people. And by creating partnerships, we were able to scale it up very rapidly. The second is that uh, we used big data to manage this whole thing. And also we kept the design very simple, you know, because I think if you want to do something quickly, you have to have simplicity and minimalism in the design. We talk about Aadhaar moving at such a, a quick pace. The speed of change, uh, whether it's in wealth creation or technology in India, has also been accelerated. Can you can you talk to me about that dynamic? Oh, absolutely. I th- I think I mean I, in my own lifetime, you know, so many things have changed. I mean, I I, I really was hadn't watched TV till I was seventeen years old, and then you know we didn't have mobile phones till just 15 years back. We didn't have PCs, we didn't have computers, we didn't have smartphones. And uh, this has coincided with uh, the India's economic liberalization. And I think the mass movement of communications, television and internet and all that has awakened people to the possibility of what is possible in their lives. So certainly in India and elsewhere in the world, you have this huge upsurge of uh, aspirations that are emerging in the global sort of middle class and aspiring classes. What is an analogous phenomenon uh, in history uh, to this? Uh, Some people say the printing press. Yeah, so certainly the printing press, the democratization of printing, you know, people taking the Bible from elites to common languages. Uh, But I don't think we have seen something where there's this scale, we're running into billions of people, this speed of change, this upsurge of aspiration, which is why it's very difficult for societies to deal with this because the the governance system is not able to keep pace with this rapidly changing environment. The architecture of of Aadhaar is open source, which allows others to contribute and build onto the platform. You are in the midst of building the pipe. Simultaneous with that, have you started delivering services through Oh, absolutely. In fact, the first major service we are rolling out is direct benefit transfer, where we are able to attach to uh, ID a bank account. And uh, uh, then once you attach the account uh, account to the ID, then I can just send money to the number. So electronic benefit transfer is the first use of this ID for financial transactions. Obviously, there's going to be errors uh, in the system. In general, how much margin of error do you expect in the system? I've, I've heard numbers from 1% to 4%. Well, you know, obviously we have uh, the challenge of some people enrolling more than once where the deduplication takes care of that. But we, not always, perhaps. No, well, we have 99.99% accuracy. Really? Yeah. 
And that's, we have done enough tests for that, which means basically on, on a billion people, we'll have 100,000 duplicates. I've Pretty heard good. that it's from like 1% to 4%. In terms of deduplication, mm-hmm. which is making sure everybody has a unique number, that's, that's 99.99%. Authentication, where you come and authenticate yourself online, there you may have you know one or two percent, depending on which part of the system we're talking about. But the way to look at about, look at it is not to say that uh, you know how perfect it is. It is where are we starting from? And you know today we have a situation where uh, you know millions of people don't have an ID and government benefits don't reach the right people. So when you take it from there, it's a huge improvement. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nandan Nilakani, co-founder of Emphasis. We'll hear more from Nandan coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Nandan Nilakani, co-founder of Infosys, a global information technology and consulting company. Nandan started Infosys in Bangalore, India, with six colleagues in 1981, and the company has more than 150,000 employees and $7 billion in revenue. Nandan left Infosys in 2009 and is leading a social initiative started by the Indian government. He is the chair of the Unique Identification Authority of India, which through its project Aadhaar is seeking to provide unique identifications to every Indian resident. There are $250 billion that will be spent over five years on programs aimed at the poor, issued by the Indian government, uh, food, fertilizer, fuel, and 40% of these benefits will go to the wrong people. And Aadhaar is one way to try to address that issue. What has been harder for you personally in this initiative? Well, I think, you know, and I think this is something that applies to anyone who moves from the private sector to the public sector, anywhere in the world, is that they are very different worlds, right? In the private sector, the goals are clear. You increase revenues, reduce costs, increase margins, increase market cap, increase market share, launch new products, all that stuff. In the public sector, it's uh, there are a lot more stakeholders. There's the government, there's parliament, there's the bureaucracy, there's the journalists, there's activists, there's the judicial system, there's all kinds of oversight bodies. In fact, I had to sort of uh, be the ambassador of that of the project in some sense. So when this project began, I went and met every state government. I met all the banks. I met all the oil companies. I met everybody, actually. A- anybody who had a connection to this. And so by reach and I met all the business uh, business groups and all that. The idea was to tell them this is coming, this is what we are planning, and this is how it's going to work. So that when it actually came, nobody was particularly surprised. When you're trying to bring change at scale, you're bound to have uh, many op- opponents to that change. And that's why by working with all these uh, tech companies, the banks, the state governments, the oil companies, we have tried to create a positive coalition that wants this to happen. And that countervails against the negative coalition. There has been some opposition to the project, uh, including interests that say that having this vast database held by the government might violate privacy. What is your answer to them? Well, you know, I think uh, this is unlike a database which collects all kinds of information about you. This is really just an identity database, and the information that's in the system is very simple. Just the name, address, date of birth, sex, and the biometrics. And it's only used for verification or for authorizing your identity to somebody else. 
and information about you is is not kept with uh, with this system it's kept in the respective database for example when a bank uses the id system the bank has your financial information mm. when the healthcare system uses the id system the healthcare system has the uh, healthcare records so by design it's not to aggregate information which or it's rather just use a id so we have paid a lot of attention to making it as simple as possible and not to create something which will impinge like that on your privacy you also in addition to helping now to, to transform this uh, social landscape uh, you helped to pioneer uh, the technology landscape in india in 1981 when you started emphasis with six colleagues how old were you i was 26 you were 26 years old and you had worked at putney Compu- computer systems uh, in mumbai and you decided to venture out and start your own technology service company what was your vision for the company at that point when you were seven of you well uh, it was really to create a global company a company which had an international footprint a company that was well respected because it stood for certain values the ethical conduct corporate governance quality and all that you had a global outlook from the inception oh absolutely in fact uh, at no point uh, has the global revenue of the company been below something like 80 90% it had always had a very international very global outlook had you been out of india yes uh, most of us the founders had worked out traveled abroad so they were familiar with global business re- requirements you had been abroad yes yes i'd worked uh, on projects in boston i think i'd just done in boston Talk to me about the level of technology education in India in the 1970s. Like why were you Indian citizens going to Boston to help them? What was the catalyst yeah. for no, focusing on this? It's a great point. First of all, you know, you're talking about the late 1970s. The late 1970s were a very interesting time because uh, technology till then were dominated by mainframe computers, uh, you know, IBM 360 and all that. And then the late 70s saw the rise of mini computers. Uh, so you had all these uh, exciting new companies from the Boston area, the you know sort of called the Route 128 uh, companies. And by '81, the PC revolution started. So there was a transition from mainframes to mini computers, PCs, and all that happening at that time. And in India, in particular, what happened was in 1977, uh, IBM withdrew from the Indian business uh, scene for because they had some difference of opinion with the then government. so the market had a sort of a vacuum and these mm-hmm. mini computer companies came in sort of started doing well and uh, you know most of us had degrees in engineering from colleges that had taught computers so there was a you know large pool of talent and english was the language of business so people were comfortable operating in a global business environment so all these things came together In the 1970s, the Indian government was more socialist and had specific mandates on companies like Coca-Cola and IBM. That the government of that period insisted that some companies dilute their equity in India. So I think companies like IBM and Coca-Cola decided that those terms were not what they wanted. They decided not to continue to do business there. Now, you grew up in a family that had um socialist leanings. Mm-hmm. Uh your father was a Fabian socialist. What exactly is a Fabian socialist? You know, uh uh the F- F- Fabian socialism was something which came out of the UK in the 1930s and 40s. Essentially it was a left-leaning philosophy. India's leaders at that time like Jawaharlal Nehru, all of them were educated in, in the in UK. Nehru the yeah, India. Well, and who was the first prime minister of India. Mm-hmm. So uh, the so the government which came into power uh, had 
socialistic leanings and uh, that continued till 1991 when the government they did something called liberalization they opened up the economy and made it more easier to do business so when we started enforce which is full 10 years before uh, 1991 we were still in uh, sort of the last 10 last decade of an environment where business had more challenges given that you had socialist leanings in your family and here you were starting a global company what were your parents opinions of what you were doing well one thing was that it was not generally considered uh, the cool thing to be an entrepreneur in in those days so you know people of my generation and my background would seek a job so the first big thing was the my parents misgivings were about starting a starting a company and so they had to be convinced about that but later on once they saw the success they were they were, they were on they were, they were on board i'm jessica harris you're listening to from scratch my guest is nandan nilakani co-founder of emphasis and the chair of the unique identification authority of india which through its project aadhar is seeking to provide unique identifications to every indian resident So talking about the early days of Emphasis, talk to me about some of the the granular challenges that you faced in Bangalore when you were getting the office yeah. together and Well, everything was a challenge. I mean, you know, getting a phone connection took 2 years in those days. Uh going abroad required you to take permission from the central bank and every time you went abroad you had to go back to them and give a reason why you were going abroad and they would give you a few dollars because at that time uh the Indian economy was very short of foreign currency. so it was very difficult to go abroad to conduct business and you know renting a place would take would be difficult uh it just that the 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 operative conditions for doing business were very challenging you've said before you started the company with $250 what does that mean where did that go and who well, did it come the, from the the $250 the initial equity capital of the company uh you know the basic shareholding of the company and then over time what happened was uh, we were you know we we were profitable from the year 1 and we would put our profits back into the company and that's how we grew the grew the equity of the company now your wife invested uh, her supposed life savings into the company what what is that story well i, I mean she's she put in a little amount of money and now it's worth a lot of money so i guess that's the story <laughs> uh so she's independently wealthy in her own right and uh And she that's why she does so much of philanthropy i think she invested 180 dollars for about 1.5% of the company which for a company of 33 billion dollars market cap roughly it's not so bad yeah. what did you do specifically at emphasis in the early days uh i was a project manager and also i used to assist uh, our partner in in you know in in selling what were some of the important first clients that you had Well, our first client was a, a company, in fact, in New York, called Databases Corporation, and the founder and chairman, Mr. Don Lyles, was a very far-sighted gentleman who who saw what was happening in the industry, and uh, we became his partners. Through him, we worked on various apparel projects, and uh, apparel projects. Yeah, because his company had developed a package for the apparel industry. and we would be his partners in implementing the package at various clients who were some of the other clients that really helped to create a pivot point for you well one very good client for us was uh, reebok which was the the shoe company in boston and also in in europe and uh, the other was ge 
This was in the time of Jack Welch, and uh, they came to India and started uh, sourcing software from Indian companies. And we were very fortunate to be one of the first few to work with them. So they mm -hmm. also acted as a big catalyst to growing the business. And then in 1993, we went public, raised money, and then we really invested in marketing and sales and opened offices all over the world. Was it a coincidence that you went public after 1991 when India opened up more? Oh, I think it's a very, uh, it's, it's not a coincidence. I think 1991, uh, the India's economy was liberalized and they reduced tariffs, they reduced taxes, they made it easier to conduct business. And uh, they made it easier to raise money in the foreign market, in the, in the capital markets. And they brought in foreign investors into the Indian markets. And I think Infosys was able to take advantage of that. When we hear about uh, Infosys as providing uh, information technology services and consulting, like walk me through an example. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, basically what happens is that uh, companies spend a huge amount of their dollars on their technology to support their operations. For example, they need uh, software to manage their manufacturing, their sales, their marketing, their finance, their supply chain, the sales force. And companies spend billions of dollars and maybe one to 5% of their business, of their uh, top line on IIT. And uh, they employ a large number of people to do that. And often not just, it's not just about having their own people. They need to outsource this or give this, you know, get other companies who have the expertise to do this. So we, pro Infosys provided that, uh, that capability. I've read that you pioneered the global delivery model. What does that mean? Well, you know, suppose you're making a movie and you're making an animation movie you know, the movie may be uh, conceived in, in Hollywood, the, the, the producer may be in, in the East Coast, the animation studio may be in Bangalore. So it's all, they all bring all these pieces together and make a movie. So this is sort of globalization of work. And that's what Global Delivery Model does. It explains how you can take an activity, uh, break it up into different pieces and get them done in different parts of the world and then you bring it all together again. In addition to being innovative on the technical on the technology front, Emphasis was also innovative on the more social front. It was the first company, for example, to give employees stock options. Yes. Uh, so there there was this uh, government's component to it. Can you talk some more yes. about that? Uh, Infosys was also a pioneer in corporate governance, you know, in running a company ethically, in being very transparent about all its uh, dealings, in, in putting inf information about its performance out on the, on the website and to shareholders. So it was not just about technology, it was about creating a, a new kind of a company, uh, which was very professional and very... Uh, uh, ethically correct in its behavior. We might take that for granted in the United States where laws are formalized. Things are a little more, were a little more amorphous at the time. Yes, basically what happened was that post-1991, when the Indian business environment became much more easier for businesses to compete, uh, it was also a period when uh, in India was setting the structure of the market economy. You know, it was setting up new stock exchanges, new stock regulators, uh, creating electronic share, uh, sh you know, shareholding systems and so forth. And in that, I think the role that Infosys played was demonstrate how a company should be run in this modern market economy. What do you like to do personally? Actually, I'm, I'm very boring because I work or I vegetate. So it's not, it's not very impressive. You vegetate, you don't meditate. I, I don't meditate, but but I'm quite uh, chilled out. You know, 
because I'm a natural meditator. Have you always been? Yes, uh, I I I don't get uh, hassled too easily. It's a mm. gift. So that helps me because I even though there is a lot of chaos, flux and turmoil, I'm able to manage. Was the culture of your home similarly calm? Yes, I think it was uh, quite calm. And you know, we uh, a culture at home was talking about big things, talking about the state of the world, the state of India, the state of. What I meant is that we didn't get caught in small small stuff. In Bangalore. In Bangalore, but later on, what happened was I had to. My parents had my father had a mobile job. He had to keep changing locations. So at the age of twelve, I went to stay with my uncle in a small town called Dharwad, and I was with him for six years, well, five to six years, and then I went to IIT Bombay. Hmm. So how was it being away from your parents for six years when you were twelve? Those are pretty formative yeah, years. Yeah, sure. And I think in some sense, uh, uh, well, my uncle and his family were extremely uh, generous and gracious, but. Definitely, being on my own from the age of twelve certainly has contributed to my sense of independence. On the subject of of family, you met your wife Rohini in nineteen seventy seven uh, when you were still a student at the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay. Um, how did you meet? Well, you know, I'd gone to her college and I was part of the IIT quiz team, and that's how I met her for the first time. And uh, IT quiz team, the information technology. No, quiz it was team. a general quiz. You know, all these general like Jeopardy kind of thing. Oh. People ask random questions, which you answer. So I was on the IIT Bombay quiz team, and we went to take part in a quiz in Elphinstone College where she was studying. That's how I bumped into her. And uh, I think uh, she she's been very supportive because we got married the same year that Infosys was started in 1981. And uh, when I told her that I'm going to quit my job and Start a company. She was very supportive, and then again, when I quit Infosys in two thousand and nine, uh, she was very supportive. Uh, when I took up this massive job in the government, you met Rohini at Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay. Can you talk to me about your time in college, where you were for five years? It was probably one of the most formative experiences in my life because I came to this sort of elite campus and really got to know. All my really good friends, a lot of them are from from that those days, and uh, it it really helped me to develop my uh, not just my academic skills but my social skills. What's and, an example? Like what were you, know, you I, like I, socially no, prior? Well, you know, I, I I stood for election and became the general secretary of the college, so all that really helped me to I guess become street smart, as they say. So when I got into business. I think the the skills I learned there were very useful in in being able to do business. What were you like prior to IIT? I think I was m- much more reticent and shy, and I don't think I had the same confidence that I had when I came out. Just on the TV front, you watched TV for the first time when you were seventeen. What are some specifics about that experience? Well, you know, this this is this is one channel, black and white. So, you know, good thing about TV those days was you all watch the same program because only one program, and therefore it brought everybody together. What do you watch these days? Actually, I, I started watching a lot of U.S. Uh, shows because you can just download them. You know, it's like fun. what? Uh, right now, I'm watching House of Cards on on Netflix, and before that, we were watching West Wing, which I had not seen when it was done. Then we were watching Boss, which was a show and set in Chicago. Just catching up with US television. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you Jessica. My guest has been Nandan Nilakani. 
Coming up, we'll meet Dan Yates, co-founder of Opower, a software company focused on energy efficiency. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.